Good evening. Good to see all of you again here this evening. What do you share on the closing night of revivals when you have 103 other topics you can talk on? As I was met downstairs with the brothers and we were praying, well, I got here a little, I was the first one here, by the way, and um, was sitting out the car just kind of relaxing and had my eyes shut and felt like I wanted to go to sleep. Tired, ready to go home. Thought, well, wow, what a fitting message. But that's not what the Lord has for us tonight, I don't think. <clears throat> so pray for me. I am looking forward to going home. And that would be a fitting message, right? <clears throat> Just a little, I've got ten things that I would like to commend you for. Ten things, um, ten thanks. Thank you all for inviting me to come this weekend. And I don't know who all was involved in that process, but um, I've been revived. I have immensely enjoyed my time here. I do not regret coming. Sometimes before week of meetings, or at least in my experience, I haven't had enough, I hadn't had enough experiences, I guess, to really be, be pumped and looking forward to the time until I get to go or whatever. That hasn't been my experience, but I don't regret coming. My only regret is not having my family with me. I think they would have thoroughly enjoyed, uh, spending the week with you all as well. Number two, thank you, Richard and Sharon. I think you're here, aren't you? There you are. <clears throat> you have done a wonderful job in providing a four-star Hilton motel with a full complimentary breakfast. My needs have been more than met. Thank you. I really enjoyed my accommodations there. Number three, thank you to the rest of you that have hosted me in your homes. God bless you for your excellent hospitality. I appreciated that you didn't try to give me three meals a day. I, I really appreciated the brunch schedule or the two-meal schedule. Um, it's not like I'm out shoveling corn salad or whatever all day long, so I don't build a big appetite, and I, I really appreciated the, the two meals that you did provide. It was spot on. Number four, thank you, Dwight, for loaning me your horse. It was very adequate. Number five, thank you, ushers, for filling the kind of the sanctuary from the front to the back. I've been in churches already where it felt like everybody was scared of the preacher, and they filled the auditorium from the back to the front. And so you've done a good job in getting people to sit up here. It makes it a little more warmy up here, warm feeling. Thank you, young people, for filling the front couple benches. I, I want to bless you for that. And your interest and, and your anticipation that I see on your faces as we stood in front of you and tried to talk. Number seven, thank you all for your kind attention. May you continue to seek God and allow Him to speak. I know a week of revivals, there's a lot of information coming across and we can only absorb so much. A number of you have been jotting notes. Good job. Uh, use those notes in the weeks, days, weeks, maybe months ahead. Pull them out, review them. Not that I'm so great, but continue to allow God to speak. 
Number eight, thank you for expressing your warm fellowship among yourselves after the service. It was good to see the long discussions after church all week long. And some of you get up pretty early, I think. And so God bless you as you continue to build those relationships and you build each other up. That's a good sign of good emotional church life. Uh, Keep it up. Number nine, thank you for your love gift this morning is sharing the financial expenses. It was more than enough. I was trying to decide what all to say here. I want to be gracious. I think Paul, I didn't look this up, but I think Paul used another congregation's um, Gener- generosity, and he went to another congregation, he bragged on him. And so I guess I can do that here, can I? Can I go home and brag on y'all? Thank you very much. Number 10, thank you for giving me fond memories of my time here. When I think of you here in Blooming, I want to be faithful in praying for you. And when you think of me, pray for us in Seneca Rocks, West Virginia. I know that you all have some connections in West Virginia that might be a little stronger than coming seeing me. But if you have a chance to come to West Virginia and want to hunt me up, not too hard to find. I'm the only Sean in the state of West Virginia. And so it shouldn't be too hard. Well, getting to the message, the meat and the potatoes of the night. What do I share? The first evening I read to you from... Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 3, and it's what Jesus' life mission was. But verse 2 says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And I find it interesting that even in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was mentioned. Jesus hadn't even been here yet. So was it referring to when Jesus would come and offer his life as the ransom for many? Or was it talking about a future day when Jesus is coming again? I tend to think it was. And we could go look at other prophecies. There's prophecies in Ezekiel, others in Isaiah, Daniel, that talk about the the second coming of our Lord. It doesn't necessarily say it in so many words, but that's what's being referred to. So tonight I want to be faithful in proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. So the title of the message is, The Bridegroom Cometh. I recognize tonight that there's differing schools of thought as far as eschatology goes and viewpoints and perspectives, and I want to be gracious tonight to those differing viewpoints and perspectives. I probably will be sharing this message from my perspective, and and that's. I hope you're okay with that. But I want to stay close to scriptures and share with you um, some things about the bridegroom cometh. One thing that I think we all can agree, regardless if you're pre, all, mid, pan, whatever you are, we can agree that Jesus is coming again. And that's hopefully a starting point for all of us. 
Jesus said in John 14, 2, and I'm reading from the easy-to-read version, There are many rooms in my Father's house. I would not tell you this if it were not true. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. After I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Then I will take you with me so that you can be where I am. And so Jesus is basically saying, even before he left the earth the first time, he was telling that I'm going to leave you and I'm going to come back. And so that's the the premise of the message tonight. I'd ask Brother Dwight for a copy of your brotherhood agreement here because I was interested in knowing what your agreement says about the Lord's return. And so he gave it to me downstairs before we came back up after prayer. And it didn't say a whole lot. It didn't have what I was hoping to see. He said, what is, is, is what you're looking for in there? And I said, well, no, not really. And so we were talking about some things. And, and the 18, 18 articles of confession of faith was not in there. And he thinks maybe there you've adopted in the Midwest Fellowship booklet or agreement or whatever that it's in there and not necessarily in your, in your uh, local congregational agreement. And so I don't know what your discipline says. But our discipline in our conference, we say in, of the coming of Christ, and this is from article 16, I guess, in the 18 Articles of Faith. We believe in the personal, imminent coming of the Lord as a blessed hope of the believer. And it continues on. But the word that I was looking for is the word imminent. Do we understand what the word imminent means? Anybody have an idea of what the, the definition of the word imminent At any time, is that your understanding of your discipline? That Jesus Christ could come any time? Is that your understanding of your theology? Jesus Christ could come any time. Does, does certain things have to transpire for Jesus to come? And see, these are, these are some issues that I think sometimes we get kind of bogged down just a little and, and we forget this word imminent. And then we start struggling over fulfilled prophecy and this and that and the other thing. Just a few things about the doctrine of Jesus coming for his bride or the rapture of the church, as some people would call it. Jesus is coming someday to receive his bride away. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord 
shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall be shall rise first. Then would we then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I debated with this last phrase, this last verse, you know, what does that have to do with the coming of the Lord? But I hope that tonight, as we, as we go through this message and as message, study, whatever you want to call it, maybe it might end up being a little bit more of a study than a message, but anyhow, as we go through it, I, I trust that, that there can be a level of comfort coming to our hearts as we think about Jesus coming again. In my, in my life, in my heart, it hasn't always been that way. When preachers would get up and they would talk about the second coming of Jesus, there would be a level of fear and trepidation and some anxieties in my heart because how, how is it all going to be? And it still maybe is somewhat that way. But yet... The scripture says, Paul says, comfort yourselves. And so I I hope tonight that the message is a comforting message, especially if you're ready to go. If you're not, then maybe a little fear and trepidation would be in order. But I suggest to you that what we just got done reading is, is a time when Jesus comes and it's not full of chaos. And, and, um, a scary event. I, I don't know if, if, if I'm conveying my thoughts here, but it's, it's a time of the graves opening up. And if we're watching and we're ready and we're anticipating his return, it can be an exciting time. So somewhere else in the scripture talks about hastening the day of the Lord. And I don't know, you young children, um, if you have grandparents that live more than two hours away or whatever, and um, grandpa calls or grandma calls and says that we're going to come to your house uh, next week on Friday. And so the little children, they, they know they're coming, and grandpa called when they left the house, and, and so we know that that yeah, was at one o'clock they called, they said they're on the road, and four hours down the road, that should be about five, five o'clock. They're five o'clock, they should be coming. What, what is our feeling at around, around five o'clock? And by the way, Grandpa called halfway here, and he says, well, we're about halfway there, so yeah, we're on target. Five o'clock rolls around, what's, what's, what are you doing? You're sitting out in the front porch, you're looking out the front windows, and you're waiting for Grandpa's car to come down the road and to turn in the driveway. I remember those days. The hastening of the Lord. We can't wait till Grandpa shows up. And that's the idea of that hastening of the Lord. Is that how we view or feel about the Lord's second return? It should be a time of anticipation and excitement, at least for the Christian. There's another appearing that I would like to call our attention to, and that's found in Revelation 19. 
Revelation 19, starting in at verse 11. And this is another appearing. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Does this sound like the same experience, the same appearing that we read about in First Thessalonians 4? The first one, it seemed as if he comes a little bit more, I don't know, I wouldn't say silently, because there's a trumpet blowing. There's, a, I think in Second Corinthians, it talks about the, the, the trumpet blast, and we all shall be changed. Later in my notes, we'll get there, I think, Lord willing. But this, is, but this appearing, to me, would be a fearful appearing. Because Jesus is coming with power and great glory. And he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. And not necessarily as someone that is coming to a wedding to take his bride away. And so I suggest to you that this, that this appearing that we have in, in Revelation 19 is a different, in a different time than what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4. So I want us to focus this evening on the rapture of the church, Jesus' second coming, Revelation 19, it might be his third coming, or and there might be some other comings too. I don't know how blood all's in the future. But um, let's look at the second coming. Let's keep that in our focus, the 1 Thessalonians coming. There's there's two main subjects this, this evening that I want us to consider. The one the first one is the typology of the rapture, and we have some scripture to to help us to understand what the rapture is going to involve and some of the things surrounding that. So the first thing we want to look at is the typology of the rapture, and then the second thing we're going to look at is the timing of the rapture. And you say, no, wait a minute. Well, we have some scripture that hopefully to help us with some timing ideas. And like I said, I want to be charitable to others that maybe don't view this kind of a subject as I do. I'm going to share it from my perspective. The first thing we want to look at under the typology of the rapture is the marriage rite in Jewish culture. I, I find it interesting that... Some of the things that Jesus said in relation to his second coming, it revolves around the, the wedding process in Jewish culture. Well, we're 2,000 years away from Jesus' day, and our culture does not quite correspond to their culture then. And so when Jesus talks about some of these things, we've kind of lost the... 
the understanding. And, and simply because it's not our culture. It's not something that we're familiar with. And so I'm going to try tonight a little bit. I have eight steps that I've kind of gleaned somewhere, some from scripture, some from must have been reading some commentaries that have studied in this thing a little bit more me. I don't know where I got all, all my information from. I, in fact, this message I pulled pulled out of the archives that I preached for some time ago, and I don't remember where I got all these steps. So the first step that we see, the first three steps, we could go to Genesis 24, and if you want to go there, that's fine. won't necessarily read Scripture verbatim. But the first step is the father of the groom initiates the marriage contract. And that's in the story of Abraham. He was concerned about his son Isaac, and... He sends his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. That sound like something you guys would want to be done? You want your dad to go send some kind of a, an employee or something to go find yourself a wife? Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah, not sure. But that's how they did it. And, and while we go through these steps, I want you to be thinking about some of the spiritual parallels that are involved in the salvation process and consummating in the marriage of the bride and the groom on that final day or on when Jesus comes. So the father of the groom initiates the marriage contract. The second step is the groom's father discusses the marriage contract with the bride's father or the family. They sit down and they talk about the, the marriage possibility between son and daughter. And, you know, the fathers are involved. And is this going to work? And is this going to be good? And, and I don't know what all they discussed. The third step, the bride price is discussed and negotiated. Hmm, girls, how does that make you feel? You, you've got some value on your head. And uh, depending on how valuable your dad thinks you are, he's going to base that value in the groom's father and maybe based on how much money he looks like he might have, he might have adjusted that value too. Make you feel a little bit like a piece of property. But that's how it was. They they negotiated on, on uh, a bride price and if the groom's father uh, agreed to it, that looks sounds like a deal to me. Then he would cough up whatever was expected and uh, give it to the bride's father, and plans would keep moving. The fourth step, and the next next uh, five steps, I think I have. I've kind of gleaned maybe from maybe some New Testament concepts here and there. When the bride price is paid, the marriage contract is sealed, and the betrothal period begins. The groom leaves something of value to guarantee his return. The young couple are considered husband and wife, but the marriage bond is not consummated till at the marriage ceremony and feast. If you got all that, the, after they came to this agreement and they said, yes, this sounds like a good deal, the, even the, if I remember right in some of my studying, even the, the groom and the bride, they have to kind of agree to this whole package as well. 
And I don't have it in my notes, but I think somewhere in my thinking or my reading somewhere along the line that when Jesus said um, there, when he instituted the, in the Last Supper, he instituted communion to the passing of the cup. He said, I will not taste of the cup again until it be renewed or something like that in the at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I think there is something with sharing the cup at different stages of the marriage process. And I and if I if I recall right, the the first time that there was a there was in quotes a communion service in this in this marriage rite or this marriage process is is when everybody is agreed to what is taking place. They would they would share the cup. And it, it had to do with commitment. We, we, thus far, we are all committed and we're committed to keep going. And then, um, there was another step. I think there was three times that in the, in this process that the, they would share the cup and the, and the sharing of the cup had to do with commitment. And, um, and so maybe our communion cup has more to do with a, a brotherhood commitment like I talked about this morning than it is Unity and, and common common union. But anyway, so much for that. That's free. But they're considered husband and wife, as we find in Joseph and Mary, when in that story, when Mary was found with child, they were not married. So so say as far as the um, the marriage rite or the ceremony, they were betrothed. But they were considered husband and wife, and the 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 the, con- the the contract at that point was so binding that in order for it to be broken, they had to go through the laws of divorcement to to break the 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 contract. Even though they had not been married yet, they were considered binding as married, and so that's why Joseph wanted to put her away privately. He was willing to go to the laws to make this happen, but he didn't want to make a public example. And that's, I mean, it shows some of his character. The fifth step. During the betrothal period, the young couple is preparing for marriage. The groom is preparing a place to live, and oftentimes that is on the backside of dad's house. And the bride prepares herself to be the groom's wife and anticipates dwelling with him. And oftentimes during this betrothal period, the the bride and groom didn't necessarily see each other. I mean, today we, it seems like as the wedding gets closer, the more we see each other. But in that day, that, that wasn't the case. Uh, the groom would go off and, and uh, he would, his dad, obviously his dad had more financial resources than he did. And so his dad would build a room or rooms on the backside of his house or in his house or however in preparation for this marriage to take place so that his son can bring the wife home. Does this make any sense in what Jesus said in John, John 14? In my father's house are many rooms to be more direct or exact in the translation. And I go to prepare a place for you, and I come, and and that way you can dwell with me. It makes complete sense. When Jesus talked John 14, his audience knew exactly what he was talking about. Those of you that are married, especially on the wife part, 
if you didn't see your groom-to-be for about six months, would you begin to wonder whether he even loved you? I mean, oftentimes this betrothal period was six months, maybe to a year. Um, But if your groom-to-be left you with $20,000 in a check or something like that, or cash, maybe more cash would be better, you would know he's probably coming back. And if you had any doubts that maybe he's not coming back, at least you had this guarantee that you it was in your hands. And not too many of us men would walk away from $220,000, I don't think. Not, not unless you have more money than I do. And so, the guarantee. Do we have a guarantee today that Jesus is coming back? It's been a long time, right? Almost 2,000 years since we had this promise, since he's given us this guarantee. But we have the guarantee that he's coming. Step six, after the groom has a place prepared to dwell with his bride, he sends a message to his bride to let her know to make final preparations for the wedding feast, and he's coming soon. He doesn't say when. He says, just get ready. House is ready. I'm ready, you get ready, because I'm coming soon. Seventh step. As the groom enters the vicinity of his bride's home, he sends criers ahead, declaring that he's coming. This is the final call for the bride and her attendants and friends to be prepared to enter into the feast with the groom and his friends. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. He's just outside the city gate, so to speak, and he's coming in, if you got to kill the fatted calf, it's too late because you don't have enough time to prepare the fatted calf. And then the eighth step is the bride is ushered into the marriage ceremony with the groom to consummate the marriage vows. And then after that, they go live in, the, the groom takes the bride into his home to be with him. A few verses, we've already looked at verse uh, John chapter 14, but I invite you to turn there because we'll be looking at John 14. Let's look at these verses in person. <clears throat> John chapter 14, first four verses. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. So those are some supporting verses to this, to this, these eight steps of the Jewish marriage rite. Then we have Acts 1. Leave your finger at John 14, by the way. We'll come back. Let's go to Acts 1 now. And I want to see some steps here. Or, or put some dots, scripture together to connect some dots. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And when he, this is Jesus, had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, 
which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so now Jesus, the, the, John chapter 14, we see the betrothal, the, the commitment, the contract between Jesus and his bride. In Acts 1, we see Jesus leaving his bride behind to go into the skies to prepare a place. Then let's go back now to John 14. Again, these are Jesus' words before he left. Uh, jumping in at verse 15, 15 to 19. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And so, Jesus is saying that I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a comforter. Which we would maybe a little bit more commonly understand as the Holy Spirit. And the, and the day of Pentecost, which was ten days, I think, after the ascension is when the Holy Spirit came upon the crowd of people there on the day of Pentecost, and power came upon them. And ever since then, the Holy Spirit, when a person becomes a Christian, surrenders their life, they get off the throne and allow Jesus to be on that throne, and the Holy Spirit comes in, moves in as well, and empowers the person to... Be what God wants them to be. Uh, verse 25 and 28 through 28 kind of bears the same thoughts out. These things I have spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled. Interesting that he says, let not your heart be troubled again, because he said that in verse 1, didn't he? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So again, Jesus saying, I'm going to go away, I'm going to send this comforter, and you ought to be rejoicing because I'm coming again. And his second coming should be something that we look, we look at with fear and trepidation. It ought to be something that we're looking for, forward to with anticipation. And with peace. Back to this thing about the girls holding this $20,000 that the groom given them. If we didn't have this guarantee, we would probably lose faith. We would probably lose faith. And we would lose sight of his return. Okay, recapping a few things. The groom has left his bride to make ready a dwelling place. We saw that in Acts 1. 
He has given us the guarantee of his return or the Holy Spirit. And we can go to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and we can see that there as well as some other places in Scripture. The groom is coming back to take his bride away so that where he is, so shall his bride be also. Now, I'd like for us to look at two more types of the rapture. That was the first type of the rapture I want to look at. I was going to look at. Now, two more types of the rapture. Find those in Matthew 24 and 25. Chapter 24. Jesus talks about the signs of the times and the end of the age. In verses 3 to 14, then in 15 to 28, he talks about the great tribulation. And then in verse 29, the, the coming of the Son of Man. But where I want to jump in is at verse 36. And, and just by, by way of uh, review here a little bit, the, some of these things that he says, the signs of the times, the end of the age, I, I suggest to you that that is, is currently present and in preparation for his second coming. But the great tribulation is something that's, that I feel, I suggest, that it will be after the rapture and before the Revelation 19 appearing. Um, just throw that out for whatever it's worth and, and just peace and putting dots together as, as I perceive scripture. But, uh, chapter 24, verse 36, he, he gives, he tells us some things that kind of gives us a little understanding of the type of rapture or what the rapture will be like. Verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, but nor of the angels, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming, the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two, then shall two be in the field. And one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour ye think not that the Son of Man cometh. Just gleaning a few things from here. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man come. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Is it wrong to be eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage? Is, was, that, was that the sin that caused the flood? I suggest to you that it's no. That was not the sin. But, but what he's saying is people were taking care of the daily needs. They were living life. And are we living life today? I had some food today. Was that wrong? Uh, I had some juice today. The apple cider that Justin made is really good. Uh, is that wrong? I guess it was Justin. Did you make the apples? No. Oh, the boys were. Okay. Um, it, it, it's not wrong. 
to enjoy some of these things. Is it wrong to get married or, or, or go to a wedding and enjoy the, the marriage festivals? No, it's not wrong. They were just living life. So why, so, so why, what's Jesus trying to get across? Did the flood come as a surprise to Noah? I don't think so. He was inside that ark. He was ready, wasn't he? Door was shut. He was ready for the rain to start coming. It was no surprise to him. Did the flood come as a surprise to those outside the ark? I think so. There was only eight souls. Noah was only effective in winning seven souls to convince them to get into this ark. His wife, three sons and their wives. That was all that was in there, eight souls. Out of who knows how many million that were outside. How many do you think on the outside of that boat became believers when the first raindrop fell? What do you think they did? Now, I, I realize I'm playing on some imagination, all right? But I think that's okay. What do you think they did? Do you think that it's possible that some of them, maybe a whole mob of them, ran over to that boat and started pounding on the side of that boat? Noah, 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 let us in. We believe now. You think it's possible? I tend to think so. Did it help them? When the water started getting about knee deep and the pounding didn't open the door yet, do you think they started looking for the highest hill? Maybe the highest tree, the hill was too far away. Around here, you'd have to climb trees. Back home, we can maybe climb a mountain. Spruce Knob is 4,000 some feet, so maybe that would maybe help me out just a little. Yeah, I believe there was a lot of believers. Do you suppose, I mean, this, 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 this Noah experience, and even the next two things that he says, there was two in the field, one was taken, the other left. Two women were grinding at the mill, one was taken, one the other. Do you see a lot of, a lot of chaos here? It just seems like, especially in these next two, the, the, the two, the, the two men and the two women, or the women, it was just like, they just disappeared. I suggest to you that when the rapture takes place, it's going to be a little bit like Noah's Ark. Those that are, those that are in quotes, to me the, the Ark is kind of like the type of the church. The door is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the door. And by me, you cannot be saved. If, if, if you don't enter the door by me, you're, you're out of luck. And that's the way it was in Noah's day. They had to go through the door if they were going to be, if the ark was going to do them any good. Seven days later, when the first rain started dropping, and for the next 150 days, I don't know how many days it took for the boat to start floating. And I'm not sure of the significance of the seven days. Maybe that's, I don't know, is that 
a type of the seven-year tribulation after the, after the rapture? I don't know. I'm just throwing some things out. <clears throat> Revel, uh, the, the, the experience that we have there in 1 Thessalonians 4, when, when the graves opened up and the dead in Christ rose out, rose out of the graves and those that are alive and remain kind of go up through the skies... Is it, is it going to be a terrifying experience? I don't know, but it it might just happen in the middle of the night and we just poof, go up through the skies and we all disappear. And, and if you're working for some heathen that doesn't believe in the resurrection and you don't show up for work the next morning, it's like, hmm, where's that guy at? I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing some possibilities out there. It's possible that those that will be left behind that we've been preaching to and presenting the gospel to, and they've been kind of, oh, I'm not ready yet, I'm not ready yet, they might all of a sudden become believers. Hey, where's Blooming Prayer Mennonite Church at? They all disappeared. Whoa, what's going on here? I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. We missed the boat. Well, let's look at chapter 25. We have the parable of the ten virgins. Virgins, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So we have the story of the ten virgins. I suggest to you that these were ten people that accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. These were Christians. They were cleaned up. They were white. They had the robes white, ready ready for the bridegroom to come. They were ready for the wedding. But Scripture tells us that five were wise and five were foolish. And the only difference that I can see between the two was the level or the amount of oil that they had in their lamp. I mean, they all had lamps. They all slept. They all slumbered and slept. They... Everything else was the same as we read the story. The only thing different was the amount of oil and the preparations about the oil. So what's so why what's the significance of with the oil? What's what what's that have to do with it? I suggest to you that the oil symbolizes the grace of God in a person's life. We have the different phrases in Scripture, the, the oil of, of gladness or the oil of joy. Um, so God's grace, 
I, I'd like for us to, to think about that as this oil. And that God's grace or God's provisions on our lives is, is maintained because of a relationship that we have with Jesus. At one time, I think all ten virgins or all ten of these people, their, their lamps were full of oil. It would be my, would be my assumption. But if you burn, if you burn oil lamps and you got the flame burning and after a while the level of the oil keeps going down and going down, and if you don't replenish it, your light will go out after a while. And that's spiritual, some spiritual parallels here. If we don't, on a daily basis or frequently basis or however you want to put it, um, keep our lamps, the oil being filled into our lamps, we'll have the same experience spiritually and our light will go out. Especially if we have get a little nonchalant in our relationship with Jesus, get a little ho-hum, uh, missed it yesterday, nothing bad happened, uh, so what's the point in doing it today as far as having devotions? Uh, and after a while, we have a habit of not having devotions, period. They were lacking God's grace in their lives. Did, did the grace of God in their lives make a difference when the bridegroom came? You see, we can't share the grace. My grace does you no good. That's what we see here in this story. Uh, and your grace does me no good. I can't borrow from you. I can't put my lamp or my bucket under your bucket and hopefully a little bit will drip in. It doesn't work that way. These ten that were, they needed to go have a revival. They needed to go to revival meetings to get their lamp refilled. Well, in the process of going to revival meetings, they were away, they were distracted, they, they weren't ready. And the bridegroom came. Both of these examples teaches us that when the door of opportunity is closed. If, if you noticed in the scriptures here, especially in the ten virgins, um, scripture says in verse 10 that they, that they were ready, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Now, it doesn't say it quite so clearly in the days of Noah. When that door was shut, it was shut. But that's what happened. There was no opening the door. And in this situation, the very same thing happened. They went there, these, these five foolish, they got there late, and they pounded on the door. Let us in, let us in, we're, we're ready now. Did it, did, did, did they get any help? Uh-uh. The door was shut. I'm assuming that the latch was on the inside, or they might have tried to get in, maybe. If you're not ready, you will be left behind in that without hope. And that, my friends, is not where I want you to be. When Jesus comes and the graves are opened up and we go floating, the church goes, the bride of Christ goes floating in the sky, and you are not ready, it's not going to be fun. There is no amount of Repenting at that point, there's no amount of pounding on, in quotes, God's doors to save your skin. It 
It's just as if you had died today and you're not ready. There is no second chance. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man come. There's going to be some that are ready and some that aren't ready. And the ones that aren't ready will be left behind. And I don't know if anybody here has read those books, left behind, whatever. I don't have time for them. Um, we have the scriptures, and if that's not enough, uh, maybe we need to have a heart examination. Let's look at the timing of the rapture. I believe the rapture will happen sometime between now and the beginning of the seven-year tribulation that we see beginning in Revelation 4. And we have that seven-year tribulation between Revelation 4 to 18. And there's other scriptures we could bring into focus. We could go to some of the Old Testament writings, Daniel's vision, his 70-week vision, and bring in some scripture we won't necessarily this evening. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 5. This is another supporting passage from the New Testament as it relates to the, the timing of the rapture. Second Thessalonians, the, the, the main theme of First Thessalonians is the Lord is coming. The, the main theme of Second Thessalonians is He hasn't come yet. And so here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And this is Paul talking to the Thessalonica church. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told these things. And now ye know that, that what withholdeth that ye might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And that word iniquity is lawlessness, as we talked about the the second night, only he who now letteth or restrains will will let or will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy them with the brightness of his coming. And so the question I want us to think a little bit about is what is restraining lawlessness today? Any ideas? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is restraining the lawlessness. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit convicting and working in the hearts of even sinful men, there would be a lot more sin and a lot more crime and a lot more lawlessness than what we do have. When the bride is taken up, when let's go back to the Jewish marriage now. When the bride comes or not the bride, when the groom comes to be to 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 bring his marriage to fruition, and he's the bridegroom cometh, he's coming, is there much value for the groom? Sorry, if there's is there much value for the bride to continue hanging on to that twenty thousand dollar guarantee? She might she might when she sees him, she might pull it out and say, here, thanks for coming, right? You get your $20,000 back. And she doesn't need it anymore. She has the real deal. She's got him. She doesn't need the 20000 anymore. 
when the when the when the church is no longer here, the church doesn't need the Holy Spirit here anymore. And I suggest to you that when when the when the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit will go up with it, and the atrocities and the the stuff from Revelation chapter four to eighteen will run rampant. And it's no it, it is no question in my mind how some of the horrendous things that happen in that time period can happen in seven years. Simply because the Holy Spirit is not here keeping in check the lawlessness of sinful man. The church age. Matthew 28, verse 20 says, this is words of Jesus, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all, even unto the end of the world. That word world would be better understood as age. In a, in a, in a more direct translation or as, as our understanding today. And so I suggest to you that we are living in the church age. And this word world, I think, has caused some conflict as we think about the eschatology, end time events, uh, Jesus coming and the end of the world all happening at the same time. Um, at the end of the age, church age, when, when the church is raptured, when the bride comes for the, uh, sorry, when the groom comes for the bride, That's the end of the church age. That's the end of the betrothal period. And they're, they're finally married and they get ushered into that marriage feast of the Lamb. Turn with me to, and, and just to kind of support some of this thinking here, turn with me to Revelation 1. That we are currently living in the church age. A few words that are used or at least one word that is used here in Revelation 1, verse 11. It's Jesus saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he, he names these seven churches. But is that word are past, present, or future? If you are eating... Is that something you did yesterday or doing it currently now or is that something you're doing tomorrow? I suggest to you it's current present. So he used current present words. And so Revelation 2 and 3 where we have the seven churches listed and I thought of maybe preaching a message on the seven lessons from the seven churches. Um, I don't believe that the seven churches that we have are put in order for timeline purposes. And we're not necessarily, in quotes, living in the Laodicean church age or church time frame because we're, we're close to the rapture. There's churches today that are not experiencing the Laodicean church. They're experiencing the persecuted church or they're experiencing one of the other churches. To me, the, the seven churches is, is a warning for us that we could be involved in any one of those churches. At any given time throughout the church age. Um, 
I believe there was Laodicean churches throughout the age, the, the church age history. Now turn with me to chapter 4. <clears throat> and here is where I, I, I feel that the rapture takes place between chapters 3 and chapter 4. And this is why I say that. Verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And so we have the church age in chapters 2 and 3. He's seeing those visions and then the angel says, I'm going to show you things that hereafter. And between verses, or between chapter 4 here till we get to chapter 19 that I read earlier, we do not see the word church anywhere in the, in, in Revelation there. There's a few places that talks about the saints, the faithfulness of the saints and things like that, but what did I tell you about how many believers there were on the outside of the ark? How many, those, those five virgins that came and they were late, were they believers? Uh, we don't know what, what happened to them, and that wasn't maybe quite as, in quotes, uh, destructive as the, as the flood was. But it's possible that there could be believers or people that became believers during the tribulation period, and I believe there will be, but you won't die a natural death. You will be killed and you will be annihilated for your stand for Jesus Christ. I had a brother tell me after I preached this message in my home congregation a few years ago, he come up to me and he says, Brother Tom, you've given people too much hope for some kind of sort of salvation after the rapture. I said, well, I just want to preach the scriptures. And I, because we see, we see the uncalleth the faithfulness of the saint and things like that in chapter 4 to chapter 18. But it's a hideous time. It's a, it's a terrible time. It's a great, a time of great tribulation when the wrath of God is poured upon the, on the sinfulness of man. And I didn't necessarily review this, but I, I'm just going to throw this out. The, the, the faithfulness of the saints is, if I remember right, or I, I'm, I'm thinking right, is in the first half of that seven years. You don't see anything about the faithfulness of the saints in the second half. And the second half is where you have the, have the vials of God's wrath being poured out upon the people. And, and these people are suffering because of God's wrath and they're wishing to die and they can't die. I, I, I read through that like, wow. It looks a little bit like Pharaoh. You know, he, he was facing these, 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 um, you know, the first number of plagues, the scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then about the last five or six, the scripture says that God hardened his heart. It doesn't seem like Pharaoh had a choice in the matter anymore. Maybe that's a little bit of how it's going to be in the second half of the, of, of the tribulation period. These people can't repent. And that's some of the terms that is used. I don't think the church, why would God allow his church, his bride, to face the great tribulation? 
In chapter 19 of Revelation, we have Jesus in verse 14. Let's, let's turn there. I think maybe we read it already, but let's turn there again. We have Jesus, his, verse 12, his eyes are as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is included in his armies? If the rapture hadn't happened, the, the church wouldn't be included in the army, right? Well, then we sing that song, we are in the army of the Lord, or whatever. I mean, wait a minute now. See, when the rapture takes up, the, 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 the marriage feast of the Lamb takes place, the church is, the army of Jesus Christ is up there with him, and when he comes, the church will come with him, and the church will reign and judge nations, and that, I, I didn't necessarily pull that up somewhere out of some scripture, but I think that scripture where where we will rule and we will judge nations and Jesus will be our king. And then chapter 22. And by the way, chapter 19, 20 are still future events. 22, chapter 22, verse 6. By the way, we, we read some of this the other evening as far as the glories of heaven. But then verse 6, he says, Then he said unto me, These things are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his service the things which must shortly be done. I suggest to you that John was brought back to reality. John was brought back to the current present church age. And he's talking about what things shall surely be done. And then he says, Behold, I come quickly. And and the rest of, of chapter 20 is, is back into the church age. Well, what is Jesus' message for us today? Those of us that are still alive and living in the day of grace, or we could call it the church age. What is our message? What should we be preaching? How should we be relating? We, we go back to the seven churches, and we can look at some of the things that, that the Lord of the church calls these seven churches, and a number of them, he says, repent and get ready for I'm coming. Because they were involved in sin. They had allowed sin to run rampant in the congregation, and he's calling them to repent. And I'm coming quickly. There's uh, there's a uh, three or four of them or so. He says I'm coming quickly. The one the one church. I think it was the persecuted church. Yes, uh, chapter two verses eight to eleven. It was the persecuted church. And and by the way, there was two blameless churches in in these list of churches. The others Jesus had found fault. But the blameless or the persecuted church was a blameless church, and I let me see here. That's not that's not the word I wanted. Let me see. Where's the where's the other blameless church? Yes, in chapter three, verses seven to thirteen. This is the second blameless church. It was the faithful church. 
Verse 11, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold, I come quickly. It would have the idea of, of um, hang on for dear life of what you have because I'm coming soon. Don't let it go, is the idea. But the rest of the churches that had some fault, it was repent for I'm coming quickly. And I'm going to take your crown out of, take your light out of the crown. So that's the message for us today. Repent and get ready for I'm coming quickly. And we saw that in the story of Noah. We saw that in the ten virgins. That was the message. Be ready. Be watching. If, if you knew that you were going to have a thief at your house at 11 o'clock tonight, would you, what would you do? Would you, uh, go to the basement and hole up and wish for the best? Or would you turn on all the lights and be ready for him when he got there and invite him in and give him cookies and... Are we ready? Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. We don't know when he's coming, but are we, if we're anticipating and we're ready, we're watching and we're prepared, it doesn't matter when he's coming, we're ready. The light's on, come on. And that's a little bit what I see John saying there at the end of Revelation. All right, recapping a few things. The bride price has been paid. Jesus died on the cross. In Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Jesus paid the bride price. He satisfied the requirements to get himself a wife. So the bride price has been paid. The guarantee has been given for his return. The Holy Spirit was given to us at Pentecost. And Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We have the guarantee, which is the earnest or the guarantee of your of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And so this guarantee is going to be in our hands until Jesus comes again to gather his bride home. The first bridal preparation cry has went out. Acts 1, 10 and 11. And this had to do with those uh, the, the 11 disciples there as they watched Jesus go into the sky. And the angel, there's two angels that came to them and said, uh, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The first cry has been given. He's coming again. It's not Jesus saying, I'm coming again. The angels were saying, I'm com- He's coming again. The final bride preparation cry has been sounded. As we saw in Revelation, the groom himself said, Behold, I come quickly. And that's in Revelation 22. We saw it in verse 7. There's a couple more times till the end of the chapter. Behold, I come quickly. I suggest to you that the return of the groom is the next major event for the bride. 
There's nothing that needs to be done for Jesus to come again. The groom has sent us his message that his return is soon. Behold, I come quickly. And that word quickly doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a moment, a twinkling of an eye, but it's going to happen very soon in time frame. It it could be either way. I'd like to close with 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses from uh, through 51 to 58, not everything, a few picking out a few here. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are we looking for his return? Is there some anticipation in our hearts? For the eastern sky to split wide open and that trumpet sound. And the dead in Christ arise and we go floating up into the skies. But go back to some of our illustrations. A few questions for us to consider. Are you inside the door of the ark of safety? If you're not inside the door of the ark of safety, you're not ready. Is your lamp full of the grace of God? As those ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. The foolish ones, their lamps were not full. Completely to the top. Filled up, satisfied with the grace of God. If your lamp is not full, you're not ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.